Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAP support of you podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not for diagnosing things on anyone's eyes. Each week, we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew? Today's topic is orbital lymphatic malformations, which uh, also are called lymphangioma, which is probably what you and your attendings call it because this whole technical nomenclature change into orbital lymphatic malformation is more of a you got to try to get all this stuff consistent with all the other stuff like choroidal hemangiomas, capillary hemangiomas, malformations, that sort of thing. So we'll sort of refer to it back and forth, mainly so that you don't forget orbital lymphatic malformation is the real deal name for it now. Yeah. So if you refer to, I guess, the other episode we did on like, that was capillary hemangiomas in the orbit or, or on the eyelid, this is sort of in that same vein, same sort of BCSC chapters. Yeah. yeah, it's an orbital tumor. Orbital tumor stuff, right. And these mostly occur in kids, and stuff that we'll talk about also goes into a lot of its characterization with pathology. But that also, the pathologists are still actually arguing about how exactly to categorize this. We'll get into that in a second, but... To start off, if you were to somehow look at this stuff on a microscope slide, you'd find some characteristics to be that they be unencapsulated tumors that kind of diffusely infiltrate throughout the entire orbit or wherever they are, although that can be quite variable. And like the cavernous hemangiomas, they look like there's big old liquid-filled spaces. These are also very characteristic for these orbital lymphatic malformations, these lymphangiomas, they have very lobulated-looking sacs of fluid. Different from these, from the cavernous hemangiomas, is that those spaces, they don't just contain blood, they also contain lymph, of course. And maybe you might even be surprised to hear that they contain blood at all, being categorized as a lymphatic malformation. Yeah. Um, and we'll and get into that in the next sentence, but uh, these sacs in between them they're sort of lined by little flat endothelial cells and fibrotic interstitial tissue. So pretty thin-walled sacs or lobules. And when you're testing, okay, is it a blood channel or is it a lymph channel? Immunohistochemistry suggests they are lymphatic channels, which might be why these like uh, linings are so flimsy. And you're not dealing with some spurting blood artery or anything. These are, if lymphatic channels, you know they're going to be pretty low flow. So all those things are characteristic of these lymphangiomas or orbital lymphatic malformations. So if this is a lymph tumor or malformation in the orbit, does that mean that there are lymph nodes in the orbit? Good question, because this is where the controversy starts. There aren't supposed to be lymph nodes in the orbit. But remember, you can have lymphatics that aren't technically lymph nodes. And people all along have admitted and agreed, yes, there are extranodal lymphatic lesions that can occur in the orbit. And those are things like reactive lymphoid hyperplasia, ocular adnexal lymphoma, infiltrative lymphoma. But that isn't... This stuff, lymphangioma, or technically orbital lymphatic malformations, that is sort of in its own category, and we'll say why. 
Just suffice it to say that for lymphatic malformations or lymphatic, I guess, uh, hyperplastic, neoplastic things around the orbit in general, people still aren't really agreed on how to classify them. So if there are no lymph nodes in the orbit, do we agree that despite the obvious presence of some pathologic things relating to lymphatics, do people agree that <laughs> lymphatics are in the orbit at all? That's actually super controversial too. Even just like 15 years ago, there was a paper out in one of the major journals titled like, Orbital Lymphatics, Do They Exist? And uh, credit to authors, Drs. Uh, Dickinson and Dr. Gassas there. But that's the extent of the controversy. We don't have to get too far into it, but I do find it most notable reading into all this stuff that vasculogenesis and lymphogenesis in the eye are not as mutually exclusive as people used to think. In fact, you know, even going off into glaucoma stuff for a bit, there's some recent discussion that maybe Schlem's canal is actually a development from a lymphatic embryologic origin. Hmm. Neat. So this sort of blurry line between blood vessels and lymph vessels around the orbit might explain why there's so much blood and lymph in these lymphangioma lobulated sacs. Okay, so so if I'm understanding right, there's essentially no lymph nodes in the orbit. There's this question that there's lymphatic vessels, but they're probably not that prominent if there's a debate over whether they exist in the orbit or not. So how can one, you would think that you wouldn't be able to have a problem with a orbital lymphatic malformation in the orbit. How would that happen then? It, as usual, goes to goes back to the black magic of embryology. When I look into it, the texts refer to something called the pluripotent enlage, and I don't know if I'm even saying that right. Enlage, maybe? Enlage, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It sounds like a good band name. What the heck is that? <laughs> the formal definition is just quote, the rudimentary part of an organ during development. If there's something wrong with it, then you might figure that things sort of blur the line more than they should, which is how I think that's how you get lymphatics proliferating when you don't expect them to. Right. And I think that sort of motivates why this is generally a pediatric disease. Mm -hmm. uh, something I was looking at suggested that time of diagnosis for these is 60% or more of the time is when patients are 16 or under. Now, to lead into our next bit, one might think, oh, well, if you have a lymphangioma and we think that these are these typically come from an embryologic reason, why don't they just present at birth typically? So I think that leads us into what is a clinical presentation of lymphangiomas? What makes it different from other orbital tumors? I'd say there's a couple of things to remember about them being characteristic. The maybe most characteristic thing is that like the other tumors, they have the potential to give you proptosis where they are. But the most characteristic thing is that this proptosis is fluctuant. It'll get better, get worse, and kind of back and forth like that. Especially in the course of an illness, an acute illness, typically an upper respiratory infection. Oh, why is that? Well, you know, you get a sniffly cough or a cold when you're a little kid and your immune system goes into overdrive. Turns out... That's what your lymph stuff is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And this is like a total side note, but you know, we, we're talking about lymph nodes and how there's none in the orbit. That doesn't mean that ophthalmologists don't need to know lymph nodes at all. I figure I'll just mention it here because uh, we may not 
cover lymph nodes because there's so few to think about in other episodes. But the eyelids, you know, the, that skin tissue does have drain into lymph nodes. For the lateral, it drains into the preauricular lymph node. And for the medial, it drains into the submental and submandibular lymph node. So, yeah, that's just, you know, like when whenever you see someone with viral conjunctivitis, you hopefully are checking that preauricular lymph node. That's a pretty classic thing to look for. Um, and that's to see to evaluate the drainage of the lateral eyelid. Okay, I, I like that. Nice inclusion, although we will probably mention it again when we talk about like orbital anatomy. Oh, good. Oh, good. Well, then I might edit that out. But let's keep going. <laughs> no, I think it reinforces how, like, you know, viral infections will make lymphatics expand right. and act right. up. Right. So cool. Cool. So it's, is there any other situation where proptosis may occur when someone has a lymphangioma? Yeah, if you get hit on the head or something, and if your lymphangioma does have a lot of blood in it, that blood could kind of hemorrhage even more, which would make you proptose even more, too. Yeah. And, you know, from from my reading, obviously these are rare, so I can't, I'm not going to say I've seen a ton of these, but from my reading of these, it doesn't have to be significant trauma. It can be something relatively mild that perhaps even the parents don't notice that happened. But yeah, that, that can lead to hemorrhage. So the two things to remember are those URIs or even a parent spontaneous proptosis from a hemorrhage into this lymphangioma. Yeah. One thing that's different about this proptosis is some of the other orbital tumors or neoplasms or things, they could get bigger just with Valsalva, but these mm-hmm. won't. Mm-hmm. So that's a bit unpredictable, but Ben, if you if we were to just leave one of these alone, what might their natural history look like? Yeah, it seems like it can vary quite a bit. Some are very slowly progressive over time. Others can be pretty big and they can be extensive, almost infiltrating around the entire globe and enlarge really quickly, whether it's this kind of fluctuant proptosis or otherwise. Yeah. And that variability has a lot of implications about what you're going to do about it, really. Right. Because as we'll talk about, they can be tricky to treat and therefore only really worth doing if it's affecting really important things, like what kind of things could it affect that you might want to worry about, Ben? Certainly things like optic nerve function or even possibly eye movements when it becomes significant enough. And remember, because these are generally in children, you have to worry about amblyogenesis, even if it's something that that we hope might be transient. Absolutely. On an MRI, it'll you'll see what the what the textbooks call this they describe it as a multiple grape-like cystic lesions on MRI with fluid-filled layering of lymphatic serum and RBCs. So because the person's always lying down supine for an MRI, you'll actually see a fluid meniscus in each different cyst, each different lobulated sac. And that very well could be and is the difference between the lymph and the blood in each sac. It's just layering out like a like a hyphema or one of those weird candy cane hyphemas actually right yeah well then the layering is the rbcs and the lymphatic serum right it's like yes that's what's layering yeah that is what i was trying to say yeah yeah (laughs) no i think i think you did just clarify what is actually layering you know and and these fluid lines are like straight lines so it's not like you know they look pretty characteristic 
Another thing you might find on MRI if you image these patients is about a quarter of them will have intracranial venous malformation. Usually they can be left alone because they're not arteriovenous malformations, which you know then you worry about hemorrhaging, but they can have these venous malformations that are usually observed. Yeah. So all the stories you might remember hearing about really poor, youthful people just suddenly falling over dead because all along they had an AVM in their brain that suddenly burst. That's thankfully not the same That's as not here. this, right? Because these are yeah. Venus VMs, not AVMs, and they don't—they aren't as volatile. Yeah. How do you classify these? Uh, that also is also tricky. About the only thing people agree on is uh, whether they're big or small. <laughs> uh, what's big and what's small? Macrocystic would be classified if the cysts are bigger than two centimeters. Uh, what's small? Oh, okay. <laughs> More than two centimeters. All right, cool. Okay. What if it's exactly two centimeters? Cystic. Yeah. Neither macro nor micro. <laughs> cystic. This is cystic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think we can leave classification there. You yeah. reference treatment and that it can be tricky. What's so tricky about them? The tricky stuff is that they just scoop it easily, out. Well, if you scoop it out, that's you could if it's one of those nice isolated ones far away from important things like the optic nerve. But most of the time, they're so diffusely infiltrative that they, by the time you need to do something about it, they've wrapped themselves around things like the optic nerve and kind of filled up the entire retrobulbar space. So then you figure, okay, if I can't scoop it out, can I just decompress it? And you can't really do that either because it's just going to come right back. So alternatively, you can knock on the door of your favorite interventional radiology colleague and ask him to sneak a catheter into it somehow to maybe, I don't know, do some fancy embolism or sclerosis or stuff. But because this came about because of some weird embryologic misdevelopment, there's no guarantee that your colleague is even going to be able to get to it because the pathways there should never have existed in the first place, and they're probably weird and aberrant. And because they're basically half full of blood, there's a huge bleeding hemorrhage risk as well. Right. And one study I was looking at suggested that it was a case series of um, patients that had surgical intervention for lymphangiomas, and it claimed that 71% of them had recurrence within seven years. So if, even if you try to operate on these, there's a huge recurrence rate of lymphangiomas. So yeah. given that, Andrew, what is the strategy then to fix these or to manage these? <laughs> you got two strategies, run or fight, basically. <laughs> strategy one, just do nothing. That's appropriate if it's an asymptomatic thing. And especially if it's not amblyogenic. I'm grateful that you made that point earlier, Ben. I'll just reiterate it there. But if it is amblyogenic or also very vision-threatening somehow, then the one strategy that sometimes works better is actually usually still in your interventional radiology colleague's armamentarium, which is sclerosis. So either you do that by sticking a needle into it from the orbital approach, so that's something you might not need your colleague's help for, or you ask your colleague to get to it percutaneously, if that's possible at all. Either way, you can try to do this. So it's sclerosis itself, that's mediated by whatever chemical agent you decide to use for that purpose. And 
the most common one I see listed out there is bleomycin, which is what we, I think it was one of the ones we all learned during med school, one of the chemotherapeutic agents. But the BCSE also mentions things that I've never heard of called moroate sodium, polidocanol, and one that didn't even deserve a name and is still like an acronym, OK432. I think those will be pretty low yield. Yeah, if you can remember one, probably bleomycin, right? Right, yeah. Otherwise, you know, your IR colleague can try other things that technically aren't sclerosing agents, but kind of amount to the same thing with either thrombosis or, you know, embolizing agents. Most of these are just different kinds of glue, honestly. Like the fibrin glue thrombosis agent or the cyanoacrylate glue that, to be honest, I don't really know how they do it. Like, I can't imagine they're just sticking up some crazy glue through a blood vessel and sending it on its way into your lymphangioma. Or if they <laughs> use some crazy glue, the cyanoacrylate, that's what it is, somewhere distally, and that provokes an emboli that gets sent up there. I'm not sure. Our textbooks don't go into it. We will just leave that to the black magic wizardry of your interventional radiology colleague's textbook and just figure, probably just remember bleomycin. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think to summarize some of the key points about uh, orbital lymphatic malformations, lymphangiomas, they're unencapsulated. That can be a key buzzword that helps you get a question right or not. They classically look like multiple grape-like cystic lesions with that fluid-fluid layering. Sometimes the word term chocolate cyst is used because there's blood in them. They have fluctuant proptosis that's usually, maybe in a test question them, provoked by a URI, most classically, or possibly mild trauma, or it could even be spontaneous. And treatment is really difficult. Observe, or maybe sclerosis bleomycin. And then just other options that we, you know, that answer this one that you do. And that's all we have for this week. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with the number four. And we also have our website, eyes4ears.com, also with the number four. If you like to support the podcast, writing review on iTunes or wherever you found our podcast is really helpful. Thanks. And now we can actually wish them good luck on OCAP because I think this is the episode that will come out like right before their OCAP happens. That's <laughs> so right. We take it back our good luck last week. That one didn't count. <laughs> we didn't wish you, we didn't actually mean it. Now we mean it. Good luck. Yes. We mean it 100%. Good luck out there and uh, we'll see you on the other side of it. Bye. Bye.